Well, I said it before, but I'll say it again. Good morning. Good morning. I'm not saying anything bad about first service, but the second service, good morning, is always a little bit more boisterous because you guys sleep in a little bit. So, <laughs> second service, man. Good morning. All right, before I start, I want to ask you two questions. Two questions. Don't shout out the answer. Um, just think it. If you're taking notes, jot it down. Two questions. First question. How is your relationship with Christ right now? How is your relationship with Christ? Good, bad? Think it. The second question, why? Why is your relationship in that position? Why is it good? Why is it bad? Hold on to those answers. We're going to get back to that, but I wanted to just get the, the wheels turning there. I'm going to pull this thing up here. There we go. That's a little bit better. I want to read to you today from uh, a news article. It comes from the news station KSEE in Fresno County, California. The city of Fresno announced on Wednesday, March 9th, that's this year, that it had lost $400,000 as part of a phishing scam in uh, 2020. And that's phishing, that's not phishing. So it's with a P. It's internet. As the city continues working to recover the money, business IT experts warn scams like this can happen to anyone. Fresno Mayor, Mayor uh, Jerry Dyer says the money was lost after someone in charge of paying a contractor for work the city was having done didn't realize bank account routing information wasn't matched up correctly. Fresno Mayor Jerry Dyer says, in 2020, before he took office, an employee tried to send money to a contractor building the new police substation. The invoice looked legit, as the city was currently already making payments, except officials say the employee didn't send the 400000 to a contractor. Instead, it was sent to an overseas bank account two separate $200,000 payments. A slight change in the routing number on the invoice was all it took for the city to fall victim to the scam. Dyer says now the city has more safeguards in place, multiple people looking at the invoice, comparing past bank accounts, if there's any suspicion reaching out to the contractor. And while this all happened before he was in office, Dyer says he's sorry and wants this to serve as a wake-up call. To see that a government agency can lose $400,000 in this method, I think sends a message, says Dyer. Experts also say this can happen to individuals too. As of Thursday, March 10th, the number had been adjusted up to $613,737. Hard to know who to trust these days. The same was true of biblical times as well. To be sure there weren't any phishing scams and no one on earth could ever imagine how computerized we would all get, but there have always been crooks, and hustlers, and false teachers. Men that will twist the truth to fit what they want to say or to fit an agenda. These are the kind of men that Paul faced on his time on earth. These men would take the truth of the gospel and twist it ever so slightly to fit their agenda. And in doing so, would completely bankrupt the gospel. Paul was born Saul and was from Tarsus, which was located not far from the areas of Galatia, where he would one day become a missionary to. He'd been raised a Pharisee. And we'll learn later how far Paul's zealousness for Judaism would take us, or take him. But for now, listen to Paul's description of himself before Christ. Turn to Philippians 3, verse 4, or you can scroll there. If you need a Bible, feel free to shoot your hand up. We'll get you a Bible. Philippians 3. One of the benefits of being in the second service is in the first service, I said Philippians 2. And that kind of threw us off there for a second until I read it. Philippians 3, we're going to go to verse 4. This is Paul describing himself before Christ. 
Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In the next few verses, Paul would go on to describe everything that he just listed as dung, feces, compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus. I had an interesting call this Thursday. Brandon called me right before youth group was supposed to start. He said, hey, I need you to bring me something. I said, oh, oh sure, whatever you need, whatever you need. He was teaching, I think. He said, I need you to bring me some poop. He said, what? You got the rabbits. Get the, get the rabbit poop. Put it in a bag. Bring it. Okay. I got a little bag of rabbit poop. And I, I couldn't get it to him. And we did our normal game time. Angela always puts together these fun games for the kids to do. And at the end of the game time, here comes Brandon with a big old cheesy grin on his face. Right? And he's got three plates with two Twinkies on each plate. And we get three volunteers. And they all stand up there on the stage. And, and he gives them each a plate. He says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Grab one of those Twinkies, and I want you to hold it up so we can see the bottom of it, but you can't. So they all did. They reached out and grabbed one. Sure enough, little guy on the left, on the, on the right of the stage. Big little rabbit poops right there in the bottom of that Twinkie. And Brandon said, now there's something in those Twinkies. And, and they could tell because everybody in the audience was like, oh! Right? There's something in, in one of those Twinkies. There's something really bad in there. You want to eat it? And wouldn't you know it, one little guy said, yeah, I just want to eat it. And that was the one guy that had three little rabbit poops. <laughs> We didn't let him eat it, don't worry. <laughs> we didn't let him eat it. But it was a picture, and it was a perfect picture of, of pharisaical righteousness, right? We had that outside of, I love Twinkies. I don't know if you guys like Twinkies. I don't care if you judge me for liking Twinkies. <laughs> I love Twinkies, right? This golden cake on the outside, this sponge cake, and on the inside, that cream comes out. It's so good. And that's what righteousness looks like. You can sit up here and raise your arms up while you sing, pray loud. Amen after every song. But it's dumb on the inside if it's not done in Christ. Right? Mm-hmm. Paul was a lover of the truth of Christ. And then along came these men, the truth twisters. In today's vernacular, these fishers. And they had a name. They were called Judaizers. These are the men that Paul called dogs in his letter to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, he says... Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Dogs. In America today, we may not catch that. Because we love our dogs. Some even call them fur babies. We put them in our bags. We take them into the store. We take them everywhere, right? We love our dogs. Households with dogs make up 76.2% of homes with a pet. Of our dogs. Data from APPA's pet spending statistics per year on dogs reveal that owning a dog costs an average of $1,480 in basic expenses annually. We love our dogs. But Paul didn't live in America. And, and Paul didn't even live in the 21st century. In the first century AD, dogs were scavengers. You didn't let them into your house. 
They had fleas and ticks, and they didn't have the bandage, you know, you put it on the back of the neck and the feet go up. They didn't have that. The dogs were disgusting. Fleas, ticks, and they ate carcasses. They touched dead things, which was unclean to a Jew. Right? They were disgusting. And in, even in, in Psalm, when uh, the, the Psalm that describes how Christ is crucified, he says, He's on the cross and dogs surround him. Right? He's talking about the Gentiles, the evil Gentiles that are crucifying him. For us, since we love our big dogs, a good parallel would be hyenas. You ever watch the Nature Channel? And see, like, <laughs> you know, they, they laugh. And the lion goes out there and bam, it takes down a gazelle or something. Wow. Then here come the hyenas, barking and chirping out of the bushes, right? They steal. That would be a hyena. And the reason that Paul called them that was because Judaizers act like scavengers. Paul's method of, of operation, you, you can go look at in Acts. Start chapter 13, and you can see how Paul progresses. But what he would do is he would go to a town, and he'd walk in, and he'd find the local synagogue, right, the Jewish church. He'd go in there, and he would preach the gospel. Just lay it out. And, he, and Paul knew that Old Testament, man. He could go through it, and he could show them Jesus was Christ. If the Jews got unruly, and they did, he would leave, and he would go maybe find a Gentile place and preach the gospel. When people tried to kill Paul, and they did, sometimes there was two times they actually fought, they actually managed to kill him. Uh, he, or when they imprisoned him or cast him out of the city, he would move. He'd just move on to the next city. And lots of times the Judaizers would follow right behind him. They fell on their feet. It was only after Paul left the town, though, that the Judaizers would move in on the new believers. Think back to that National Geographic. You've got the big herd of gazelles, and there's that little baby gazelle. Oh, don't eat the baby gazelle. All the big gazelles run off, and there's that little baby. That's what the Judaizers were thinking of, those little baby gazelles. And they would come into these new believers, and, and the first thing they would do is they would attack Paul. They'd attack Paul. It wasn't their main objective. They really didn't care about Paul. Their main objective was the gospel. But the first thing they would do is they would attack the preacher. they say, oh, you know Paul? That's great. Brother Paul, he's a good guy. Yeah. Little bow-legged. Kind of long nose. Bald. Right? But he's nice. Right? He's a good guy. But did you know that Paul didn't actually travel around with Jesus? Did you know he's not... You know, a real apostle, because the real apostles were in Jerusalem, and they actually went around with Jesus. He wasn't with the apostles when Jesus was here. So, really, he doesn't have the authority to tell you how to be saved. But we do. We're from Jerusalem. If you look at Acts 15, uh, Paul has gone back to Jerusalem at this point to meet with the other apostles. Because everybody's saying, oh, uh, the Judaizers are saying, Paul's not, not right. Paul's not right. His gospel's wrong. And so he goes back to Jerusalem to prove that he's preaching the same thing that the apostles of Jerusalem are preaching. And they agree with him. They don't add anything to him. They don't take anything away from him. And in Acts uh, chapter 15, they decide they're going to send a letter to the churches of Galatia to uh, run interference on these Judaizers that are ruining churches. And this is what they said. Acts uh, chapter 15, verse 23. And they sent this letter to, and then sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, 
have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. And they continue to talk about the letter. The Judaizers, they go out, they attack Paul. They run down his name. They say they're from Jerusalem, and they have the true authority. And now they attack what they really want to attack. Paul's just kind of, they got, they got to break Paul down to get to what they really want to get to. And that's the gospel. Right? Put your faith in Christ. That's a good thing. I love that. Christ was really good. Put your faith in him. Also, um, you need to get circumcised. Oh, and um, there's this little thing called the Mosaic Law. You need to follow that too. That's how you're really a Christian. Trust in Christ, but you need to be circumcised, and there's these laws that you need to follow, and so on and so forth. This was normal behavior for these Jewish people because the Jews actually were a very missionary-oriented group at this time. They would send people out to proselytize or uh, find converts, and they would convert them to Judaism, and they would circumcise them, and they would teach them the law. And, and in the Old Testament, that's a good thing, but now that Christ is here, it's a bad thing. And, and Jesus even talked about it. Jesus said in Matthew 20, uh, 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on the sea and land, to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. The trouble caused by these attacks would destroy people's confidence in the gospel and even their salvation. Paul reserves some of the strongest language for them later in Galatians. He actually says that he wishes those troubling the churches in Galatia would castrate themselves. Probably making reference to Deuteronomy 23.1 which says no one who is emasculated or has his male organs cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. He wanted them cut off. He wanted them out. He wanted them gone. Because what they were doing was defiling the church. Christ's church, not Paul's church. It wasn't, Paul wasn't offended for Paul. Paul was offended for Christ. And that's what these guys were doing. We still have people like this today. We do. Because I went to one of their churches. Allison and I, before we came here, we went to a church, and we walked through the door, and we discovered they were studying a book that day. Okay. Kind of already have a book, but what book are you studying? Oh, Circle Makers. Circle Makers. Okay. Anybody ever heard of Circle Makers before? Best-selling New York Times book, so it's got to be good, right? Good theology. We were sitting in the service, and what they said was, you take a piece of paper, and let's say you want something, right? I want a new truck. Oh, I want a nice truck. I want leather seats. Or a nice long bed on it. Quad caps, so I can put all my kids in there because you know I got a ton of kids, right? <laughs> I want some big tires on it. Write all that down. Write it down. And then you take that piece of paper and you put it on the floor. Then you walk around it seven times. <laughs> Just like they did in Jericho, right? You walk around that thing seven times. And the creator of the universe, the God who breathes stars out of his mouth, has to do what you tell him to kidding me? Are you joking? They're still out there. They're still out there. Evil men twisting the good news of the gospel. And it was men like these that had slunk into the towns of Galatia after Paul and Barnabas had gone through and had bewitched the foolish Galatians, believing that Paul had preached an incomplete gospel. 
So Paul wrote a letter to the churches in Galatia. Now this is different than the letter to the Philippians or the letter to the Colossians, right? Galatia wasn't a city. Galatia was an area. So it'd be like saying, I wrote a letter to the East Bay, right? So we know we've got Oakley, we know we've got Brentwood, we know we've got Antioch, right? But in Paul's case, uh, he was writing to several churches he'd already established. Uh, churches in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. At this point, I slowed down just a little bit because my poor interpreter here has the hand spell all over. <laughs> and I didn't send her the outline before the sermon, and I feel bad about that. So I wanted to slow down for that. The letter to the Galatians was Paul's first letter and was written sometime between 49 and 51 AD. We don't know exactly when. But we, we think it was, it was written either on his second or his third missionary journey. Paul had three missionary journeys, right? And he would start off and he would go up and he'd go through Galatia and what is now modern-day Turkey, and then he'd come back and he'd revisit all those churches. And then he'd go out and he'd see all that, and then he'd come back. And then he'd go out and see, and he did that three times, right, before he finally went to Rome and, and Nero had to beheaded. And the tone of the book is harsh. Of the 13 letters that Paul wrote in the Bible, every other letter he wrote included some form of commendation for whomever he was writing to. Some form of attaboy, some form of you're doing this well, but you need to do this. Even in 1 Corinthians, even 1 Corinthians had a commendation in it, and it was a hard letter full of harsh admonition. But herein lies the difference. The Corinthians were dealing with serious issues of right living. 1 Corinthians 5.1 tells us, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. To be sure, right living is important. But the Galatians were dealing with something far more insidious. The Galatians were dealing with someone altering the truth of the gospel. OG fishers, if you will. They were modifying the gospel in ways that made sure that any deposit that was intended for heaven ended up in hell. Take a look at Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. We're not going to talk about Galatians 1, 6 through 9 until next week, but I just wanted to run it over for you real quick so you can see what he says. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, and so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. Paul says they've deserted the gospel. Quickly, not slowly. Like the next day, quickly. For something that isn't even a gospel. An insidious gospel of works, just like every other cult and religion that's out there. You realize that? Every other religion out there is all about what you do. Christianity is the only religion that is about what God does. I was talking to a guy about Christ, and he was a Hindu. And uh, he said he believed in karma, and he said, well, you know, karma means, you know, if I, if I do something good, it covers up something I did bad. Right, so if I do more good things than bad things, then I'll get to go to Nirvana. I said, oh, that's, that's great. That's great. You know, I do something bad, I'll just run out and find something good to do. I don't know. 
I said, but what happens if you lose track? And I said, what happens if the law, the Ten Commandments, and Jesus comes along and says, if you think bad thoughts about your brother, you've committed murder. If you think lustful thoughts, you've committed adultery. How are you going to keep track of all that? I looked at him, I said, I said, how do you know when it's enough? How will you ever know that it's enough? Are you kidding? I said, I don't know. I just believe that I'm just going to have to do good things. What kind of faith is that? It's not a faith I want to have. I have a faith that's solid. And Paul's angry at this person. He says, let them be accursed. A curse can be translated sent to hell, damned to the very pits their false gospel crawled out of. He's serious. Thank goodness, though, we're not like those Galatians, right? Mm. <laughs> I sure am glad we're not like those Galatians. Think back to those two questions I asked you at the very beginning. How is your relationship with Christ? This is really a question just for believers. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you haven't made him your Lord, you know what your relationship is with Christ. You're an enemy. The good news is Romans tells us that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Amen. Offering to save us from the penalty of our sins. And if we repent and turn to him, he will save us. But speaking to believers right now, how is your relationship with Christ? And the bigger question is why? Why do you think your relationship with Christ is either good or bad? Somewhere in between. If you answer bad, is it because you don't read your Bible enough? If you answer good, is it because you kept up with a reading plan? If you answer bad, is it because you've been doing a good job of spending time in prayer? If you answer good, because you have been spending time in prayer? If you answered bad, is it because you kicked the cat on the way out of the house, you yelled at your wife and kids, stubbed your toe and said a bad word, grumbled about the moronic driver in front of you on the way to church? If you answered good, is it because you pet the cat and gave him a treat on the way out? You were nice to your family. You bashed your toe and only said, good gravy! You smiled at the driver that cut you off and said a sweet little prayer for them on the way to church. Brothers and sisters, if we answered why with anything other than Jesus Christ died for my sins and I am saved through his blood, we're relying on works. This is the very thing those dirty rascals, those Judaizers taught the churches in Galatia. And it's the very thing our flesh loves. It's hard to accept a gift. I have a sweet friend. I help her with her lawn sometimes. And every time I go there, she makes me take payment. Every time. I say, no, 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 it's a gift. It's a gift of love from Christ. No, got to pay for it. We want to work for it. We want to say, I did that. I worked hard for that. I deserve it. But grace pats us on the head and says, no, 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 no. Jesus did that. And there's not a thing you can add to it or take away from it because it's a gift. This is the gospel. Now, I'm going to make some of you nervous. It's been this long, and we haven't even made it to the passage that we're going to study yet. Some of you are going, how long is this guy going to go? Have no fear, my friends. Diamonds sparkle all the more when they are presented with a proper backdrop. And our backdrop is out. We're ready for the diamond. We're going to be reading Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, 
not sent from men nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with you, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and, to, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. There's a lot to unpack today, but I think if we break this passage into three quick parts, we can understand what it is that Paul is trying to communicate. The first part of our passage is Paul's defense of his apostleship. That's going to be verses one and two. The second part of the presentation is the or the second part of the passage is the presentation of the gospel. Verses 3 and 4. And we'll end with the third part, Paul's doxology in verse 5. Let's get started. Paul's defense of his apostleship, Galatians 1 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's a normal way to start the, the letter with your name, Paul. Right? It's usually followed by stating who the letter is to, but the interesting part is the way that Paul begins. Right? Have you ever gotten a call from somebody who's really ticked off? Are you really ticked off? Maybe it's your wife or your husband or your boss, right? And you pick up the phone and you say, hello? This is Lance, your boss. It's not going to be a good call. This is your wife. <laughs> this is your husband. That's how Paul starts the letter. We know he's annoyed, so let's look at what he does. Right out of the gate, Paul knows there's two attacks he needs to challenge, and both seek to undermine the gospel. The first attack is on Paul's apostleship. We talked about that. The second attack is on the true gospel. And Paul wastes no time destroying that first attack in the first half of the first sentence. Paul and apostle. Boom. Done. Roasted. What does that mean? Apostle in its primary usage is described is used to describe the 12 apostles of Jesus, right? James, John, you know the apostles, right? In a wider sense, it's used of Barnabas and Timothy and Silas. But in that primary sense of apostleship, um, we can turn to Acts, and, and we'll see how we define an apostle. Uh, there were 12 apostles to begin with. We lost one, right? Anybody remember who we lost? Judas, right? Went up, hung himself after he betrayed Christ. So the apostles get together and they say, hey, we got to replace this guy. So they come up with a little bit of a, a category of, of who they should pick to be this apostle. And they say, uh, Acts 1, verse 21, Therefore it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us, accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So they need to know the Lord Jesus. They need to meet him personally. Beginning with the baptism, baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they need to see Jesus, they need to walk with Jesus, and they need to see the risen Jesus. There's your two qualifications for an apostle. Now, is it possible to have an apostle today? No. Do you see Jesus? Do you see the risen Jesus? We can't do that. They could. Jesus was there. And that's why nowhere in the Bible do you ever see uh, any primary or secondary apostle other than Judas who was replaced. Matthias replaced Judas. The reason I mention that is because if you come into contact with any Roman Catholics, they believe that when a bishop is ordained, uh, the, other, the, the elder bishop puts his hand on that bishop. And, and the way it works in their head is as he puts his hand on that bishop, 
The bishop that put his hand on him puts his hand on him. The bishop that put his hand on him that puts his hand on him. The bishop that put his hand on him that puts his hand on him. All the way back to Peter. All the way back to Peter. It's like those little flip books you used to make when you were kids, right? You get a post-it note, and you draw a little picture, and then you turn the page and you draw a little different picture, and you turn the page and draw a little different picture, and you go, and you can see the, you know, the, the figure running, you know? Right? That's what it looked like. All the way back to Peter. Mormons. Mormons believe this. Mormons believe there are apostles on the earth today. They have them. They've been resurrected, and they have the 12 apostles. And therefore, everything they say is from God. There's an authority that comes with apostleship. Not sent by men, nor by the agency of men, Paul continues. Meaning, not sent through Peter or any of the disciples in Jerusalem like the Judaizers claimed. Remember, they said they came from Jerusalem. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. He's not saying there that Jesus Christ isn't a man, because Jesus Christ was fully human, but he was also fully God. And Paul is setting forth the claim of Christ's deity. He ends his title with the good news of not only Christ being fully human, fully God, but also raised by God the Father. And then he says, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now I want you to picture a conference call, right? And, and the phone rings and they answer it, and, and let's say I'm the, uh, the president's there, right? And he says, uh, I'm the president and everybody else is here. Do you think that everybody else under the president is there? Or do you think that it's a room full of presidents? You think, well, it's the president and all the people that are with him, right? The president is in authority. Everybody else is there too. And Paul says, in all the brethren with me. Normally he would list these guys out. He'd say Timothy, Titus, Mark, you know, whoever, Barnabas. In this case, he just says the brethren. And he's establishing I am the apostle, and these are the brethren. We're all in Christ together. We're all brothers, but I am the apostle. Right? Having defended his apostleship, Paul is now going to defend what he cares about even more, and that's the gospel. In Galatians 1, uh, 3 through 4, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't gloss over this. This isn't like a salutation or dear Sally or dear John. This is this is the gospel. Listen to it. Grace to you and peace from God the Father. Peace comes after grace. You can't flip those around. You can't say peace and then grace to you. Because if you have peace but no grace, there's a problem. Grace comes before peace, the grace of God. Unmerited favor, a gift, a covering of sins. God's grace gives us that peace of salvation. But how do we get this grace? We keep reading. We say, who gave himself for our sins? Every time we come across a statement like this, I want to pause and I want to point it out. Gave. This wasn't taken from Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ put himself on the cross, he put himself on the cross. They didn't take Jesus to the cross. He put himself on the cross. When they came and, and, and tried to arrest him, one of the gospels says, they said, we're looking for Jesus. And he said, I am he. And his power flowed out of his body and knocked them flat on their face. Jesus was. 
Christ was in control. He was the sacrifice. Hebrews 7, 26 through 27 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, he's speaking of high priests that are men, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once and for all when he offered himself to rescue us from this present age. In an evil age. Well, why was it evil back then? There's rampant paganism, evil governments, sinful people, and most importantly, they were separated from God. Thank goodness we don't have that anymore, right? We still have rampant paganism? I saw a news story the other day about a fourth grade teacher that owned a satanic temple. Paganism! Evil governments. We're not going to go there. We're in church. Are we still sinners? Yes. Absolutely. Most importantly, are we still separated from God? Absolutely. We need a rescue. And that's where the gospel comes in. And Paul takes this opportunity to bring us the doctrine of sanctification. We're going to close with this. There's a doctrine of, of sanctification. There's justification followed by sanctification followed by glorification. When you accept Christ as your Savior, when you make him your Lord, you say, Christ above all else, I repent of my sins, he is my Savior. Boom, you are justified. If at that moment a bolt of lightning were to come from heaven and you were to die, absent from the body means we're present with glory. We are justified. But since there's a bunch of you in here, I'm assuming we all didn't get struck by lightning. Right? So that starts the process of sanctification. This is how Jesus is rescuing us from this evil age. Remember when he prayed his, his high priestly prayer, he said, Lord, I don't pray to take them out of the word, world, but I pray that you would protect them from the world. Because right now we're going through sanctification. And it's a big word that means, it just, it just means we're aligning with Christ. Our lives are coming into line with Christ. Every day we're getting a little more Christ-like. We won't make it while we're here on earth. Every day we get closer. Every day I'm a little bit better than I was yesterday. How do we do that? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. We speak to God through prayer. He speaks to us through his word. If we're not reading his word, we're not listening to God. And anybody that tells you that God told me, no, he didn't. Unless it came out of this Bible, he didn't tell you nothing. This is how God talks to us. And if we're not in our word, we won't know what God is saying. Next week's passage is 1 Galatians 6-10. through 10. We read it earlier. Read it this week. Read over it. Read it a couple of times. See what sticks out to you. If you have a question, write it down. Hmm. Apply the Bible. We want to apply the Bible. You don't want to read this like Gulliver's Travels. Okay? Read it. Oh, it's a good book. And then nothing changes, right? We want to read this like it's life-saving information, right? You get on a plane and you pull out that stupid brochure and you open it up and it's like, hey, so the water ran in. It's like we're flying over the United States but we're going to land in a little lake, right? You don't really ignore that. But if you were, if that plane were all of a sudden, you're reading that thing, right? You want to know what it says? What do I do? Where's my seat cushion? Read it like that. This is our seat cushion. This is our oxygen mask that drops out of the ceiling. We can put it on and then we put it on our kid, right? 
apply it. Keep a journal. Write down what you're doing. Pray, pray, pray. All the day long. We have a prayer meeting at 6 o'clock. We meet right back here in the back there. And we pray. It's not long. But we pray. We pray together. If you can't make it, that's okay. Pray at home. Pray with your family. Pray with your kids. Pray. Not because, not to get what you want, right? We pray to align our will with Christ. We pray to align what we're thinking with God. Fellowship with other believers. We should be asking each other when we walk through the door, what's Christ teaching you this week? What have you learned this week about Christ? What's God doing in your life? Right? That's something that we're doing. Iron sharpens iron. Proverbs 27, 17. So one man, so one man sharpens another. The last step, justification, sanctification, glorification. It's going to be glorious. When we die, glorified. We're in heaven. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, the screw tape letters. Right? And it was it was all it was kind of a, a letter interaction between a chief demon and his nephew demon. And, and this demon was responsible for one guy, and he was supposed to keep him from becoming a Christian. And then the guy ends up becoming a Christian, so he, he tries to keep him out of the sanctification. right? He doesn't want him to, to tell people about Christ. He doesn't want him to align his life to Christ. So he gives him advice on how to keep him from doing that. If you haven't read it, man, read it. It's, there's some things in there that I've seen in my life, and I'm like, yeah, I did that. At the end, though, the main character dies. Bomb drops. It's World War II. A bomb drops on a castle and he dies. And it describes how his soul rises up out of his body. And it's like it's like someone sliding out of muddy clothes. That's glorification. That's gonna be that's gonna be the most bestest feeling in the whole world. It's just gonna slide off of us. All that sin. All that hatred, all the jealousy, just going to slide off us and flop onto the ground. We'll rise through Christ. That's glorification. Justification, when I'm saved. Sanctification, how I'm being saved. Glorification, when I am saved. Paul ends, to whom be the glory forevermore. It's a well-timed doxology. To whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I said this in the, in the first service. Pastor Parker gave me a little advice on how to tweak this. I said, when you woke up this morning, did you praise God for this morning? Pastor Parker wanted me to ask. Or did you wake up this morning and go, oh, another morning. <laughs> Do you see God's blessings all day? Do you thank him for them all day? Do we ask each other, what is God's love doing in your life? We should take every chance to give God glory. Not just in the general sense, but as drowning men and women plucked from the water with fluid in our lungs, gasping for air. Galatians is an amazing book. I would encourage you this week to read it. Read it and pray that the Holy Spirit will teach you while you read it. True sanctifying change. Come prepared next week to examine God's word with you. And you pray for us, and we'll pray for you, and you pray for you, and you pray for you. So that as we walk through that door next week, we'll be just a little bit more Christ-like. Not so that we can brag, but for his glory forevermore. Amen. 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 Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for these believers that have gathered in your name, wanting to offer you true worship, Lord. Wanting to learn from your word. Wanting to be sanctified. Wanting to stick to the true gospel. Lord, we pray for our country. The gospel has been maligned and twisted and just destroyed in some places. Lord, we pray that we would be lights in this community with the true gospel. That we would go out pushing this gospel to everyone, Lord. Giving them the hope that we have in you, in a risen Christ. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time together. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. 